It's great to see everybody here this morning. And I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark, currently working through chapter 13 uh, of the Gospel of Mark. This is the longest section of teaching from Jesus in Mark's Gospel. So, last week we looked at the first 13 verses, and this week uh, we'll look at verses 14 to 27. If, uh, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to grab uh, the Bible that's in front of you. If you look in the chair uh, underneath you, in front of you, you should find a Bible there. You'll find it on page 849 if you're using one of those Bibles. So Mark chapter 13, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 14 and read through to verse 27. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead you astray, if possible, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers and the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. God, we do thank you and praise you this morning for your word. God, we pray that you would use this word that you have revealed to us and is recorded in your scriptures, that you would use it to prepare us to die well. Whatever that death may look like, whenever it might come, Lord, we pray that we would die well. Looking to Christ in faith and believing in your promises, Lord, we pray that we would not be caught off guard, but that by your grace we would be ready. We would be ready to meet King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. It seems like someone is always offering a prediction about when the world is going to end. You might remember Harold Camping. A few years ago, he predicted the end of the world would take place on May 21st, 2011. It was a national story. A lot of people got into this. When Jesus did not return, Camping claimed that his predictions were off by five months. He had just missed it. And uh, so he said then, he recalculated and said that Jesus was going to return on October 21st, 2011. Thankfully, after his second failed prediction, he acknowledged that his predictions were both wrong and sinful. 
You might also remember all the attention uh, last year around the Mayan calendar. Many claim that the Mayan calendar pointed to December 21st, 2012 as the end of the world. And as a result, and building up to that day, there were TV specials. There was a movie actually entitled 2012, and a lot of people were stocking up on canned goods, which typically takes place when one of these predictions catches on. In preparation for this sermon, I actually Googled, when will the world end? And quickly I found a site that boldly declared, quote, our world will end in the middle of 2016. Between the middle of 2013 and the middle of 2016, every living person will choose to worship either the God who created us or God's enemy, Satan. The Bible alone tells us when the end of the world will be. Please read the Bible prophecy that shows us the end of the world is in 2016. And there was a link to that. I didn't read it. <laughs> Later on in Mark chapter 13, Jesus will actually tell us in chapter 13, verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so sometimes you just want to yell, don't you? No one knows. Stop making predictions. Right? Well, perhaps you've wondered, what does the Bible have to say about the end of the world? I can assure you I'm not going to make any predictions this morning. So I'm going to tell you a day or a time in which Jesus will return. But we will look at perhaps the most significant teaching that Jesus gives regarding the end of the world. It's found here in Mark chapter 13. If you were here last week, we looked at the first 13 verses, and you might remember that Jesus' disciples, in the first part of this chapter, Jesus' disciples asked that Jesus would reveal to them signs, uh, or tell them what signs would indicate that the end is near. But Jesus does something odd. Instead of giving them signs to reveal that the end is near, Jesus begins by revealing to them signs that the end is not yet. He warns them of false prophets and wars and natural disasters and persecutions. He says all these things will come, but don't be led astray. The end is not yet. Every generation will face these realities. They may be a sign of the end, but they may also simply be a reality of living in a fallen world. That was last week, the first 13 verses. But then it naturally leads us to ask the question, well, what else can we know about the end? He's told us, the first 13 verses, signs that indicate the end is not yet. But does Jesus have anything else to say about the end? And yes, he does. We could have titled last week's sermon, last week's section of scripture there, not yet, just the beginning. Not yet, just the beginning. And this week, if we trace that same theme, we could title this section of Scripture, It's Here. Because now Jesus is going to speak about the coming of that very event. Jesus answers three questions about the coming judgment and salvation of God in our verses here this morning. And these are the three questions we're going to ask and answer. This will serve as the outline for our message this morning. First of all, how will we know? Secondly, what will it be like? And third, how will it end? Okay, so those are the three questions. How will we know? What will it be like? And how will it end? 
Now, before we get into each one of these questions, I want to give you a little bit more context here. Um, I want to remind you that Jesus speaks these words in, in a certain context. In verse 1, the disciples... And so, so Jesus, is in chapters 11 and 12, he's been in the temple, he's been interacting with the religious leaders, there's conflict between them. And now, chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple, and Jesus' disciples make a comment about the beauty of the temple. They say there in verse 1, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus responds to them, and he says... Do you see these great buildings? He's referring to the temple. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then in verse 4, so Jesus has made this prophecy, this prediction that the temple will be destroyed. In verse 4, the disciples ask, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to accomplish, be accomplished? So clearly here, when the disciples ask this question, what are going to be the signs that will reveal this will take place, they are referring to the destruction of the temple, which Jesus has just spoken of. Right? Now in verses 5 through 37, the rest of the chapter, Mark records Jesus' answer to the disciples' question. But this is, this is what, what's important to, to grasp here is that as Jesus is answering this question, he is directly and first and foremost answering the question regarding the destruction of the temple. But it's also true that as he is answering this question regarding the coming destruction of the temple, he has in mind a much greater event. That's apparent by the context. It's apparent even by verse 26 when Jesus states, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So as Jesus, and this is, not, this is not uncommon in biblical prophecy to speak of two events like this at the same time. When Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple, he is even looking beyond the destruction of the temple to his second coming. The one foreshadows or points to the other. It's a sign of what's to come. And one of the things that's interesting too as you're reading through these verses is that Jesus speaks of these two events interchangeably, without distinction. So he doesn't pause for a moment and say, okay, now I'm going to talk about the destruction of the temple. Okay, now let's pause for a moment. Now I'm going to talk about my second coming. But he speaks of them interchangeably. He speaks of them without distinction at times. So that's important to keep in mind as we look at these verses. Now, first question. How will we know? How will we know when these things come? Look at chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. Let me read them for us again. It says, but when you, Jesus says here, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Now, the abomination of desolation, what is that? It even has a note there, let the reader understand. It's like he's expecting you're not going to understand that, right? Mark just kind of inserted that there. The abomination of desolation, what is this? Well, the disciples would have been at least familiar with this phrase. Because in the Old Testament scriptures, the prophet Daniel spoke of a person who will set up an abomination in the temple that would result in the temple becoming desolate, empty of true worshipers, okay? So there, was, there would be an individual, he would set up something that was so blasphemous, 
in the temple, that it would result in the temple being empty, becoming desolate. William Lane, who's a biblical commentator, writes, quote, An abomination so detestable it would cause the temple to be abandoned by the people of God and provoke desolation. Now, the abomination of desolation has been linked to three prominent historical figures or events. Uh, the first is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was a Syrian king. Uh, he lived about 150 years before Christ. Um, and he conquered, this Syrian king conquered Jerusalem. Now, when he conquered Jerusalem, he prohibited the Jews from circumcising their children. He also prohibited them from offering sacrifices to God. In addition to that, he set up an idol of Zeus in the temple. Okay? As a result of his actions, the Jews declared the temple to be defiled, to be unclean, and they abandoned the temple. This actually led to the Maccabean revol uh, Revolt, which is named after a Jewish general named Maccabees. So that's the first event, historical figure or event, the abomination of desolation has been linked to. This Syrian king who conquered Jerusalem about 150 years before Christ. The second is Titus. Titus was a Roman general. And in AD 70, about 40 years after uh, Jesus' prediction here and ascension to his father, Jesus' prophetic words here come true when the Roman warrior Titus conquered Jerusalem and the temple was utterly destroyed. And then the third figure or historical event this phrase has been related to is the man of lawlessness. Or he's also referred to in the scriptures as the Antichrist. Paul speaks of this man and his actions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Listen to his words. Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming to be God. Now, it's hard to imagine a more offensive, more blasphemous act than an individual taking their throne in the temple and declaring themselves to be God. This for sure would cause true worshipers of God to empty out of the temple. It would be an abomination that results in desolation. So these are the three historical events or figures that have been related to this phrase. Some, you see how it has multiple fulfillments, right? After Daniel, then after Jesus' words in AD 70, and then a coming future fulfillment. Jesus says, when this happens, the abomination of desolation, it will usher in a period of unparalleled tribulation and suffering. Speaking in the context of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, Jesus says, when this happens, get out of town. Don't wait around. Escape and do so quickly. And you know, it is fascinating because there's a guy named Eusebius who was a Christian historian. He was writing in the 4th century. And he spoke of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and he records, in speaking of that event, he records, of, of a, he records a mass exodus of Christians that occurred at that time. So, so Jesus' words are fulfilled in AD 70. 
the, the Jerusalem falls, the temple falls, and at the same time, Eusebius records that Christians, there was a mass exodus out of the city. So he writes, quote, The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city to depart and dwell in Pella, which was a surrounding city. To it, those who believed on Christ migrated from Jerusalem, that when holy men had altogether deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, the judgment of God might at last overtake them for all their crimes against Christ and his apostles, and all that generation of the wicked be utterly blotted out from among men. Isn't that remarkable? Here's, here's Eusebius recording the event. He says, he, he's acknowledging this prophecy has been fulfilled that Jesus made, and also this command that Jesus gives here is being honored. Christians fleeing the city as a result of the judgment of God that's coming upon it. Now, what might this look like in the future? I'll just tell you, I don't know exactly. The scriptures don't tell us much about the details of what this will look like. But we do know that there will be a figure who arises, who claims to be the Christ. He will blaspheme the name of God, claiming to be God himself. He will oppress God's people. And if Jesus' words are heeded here, then we could envision God's people fleeing, going underground, taking cover to escape intense and unparalleled persecution. So, that's the first question. How will we know, um, how will we know when these things occur? Secondly, what will it be like? Now, this is found in verses 17 to 23. What will it be like? Look there at the verses and we read these words. <clears throat> and alas for women, verse 17, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ, Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Now, I mean, these verses are, are remarkable. Jesus looks forward here to the intense suffering and the intense persecution and tribulation that is to come. And we see that in the midst of that, he expresses <coughs> compassion and sympathy for the mother who would be nursing. And it just, if you reflect upon this, it just breaks your heart to consider the, the, the level of human suffering that would have to take place for Jesus to make a statement like this. He even admonishes the disciples to pray that it would not take place in winter, lest the suffering and hardship be too much for anyone to bear. Now remember, as Jesus, again, as he makes this statement, he has first and foremost, he has in mind the conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And, and there was a historian, a Jewish historian named Josephus, who provides us in his historical records an account of the conquest of Jerusalem in AD 70. And listen to some of his description. 
He says that when Titus, the Roman general, comes in, he sacks the city of Jerusalem. This is a description of the city at that time. Josephus writes that roofs were full of famished women with starving children in their arms. Alleys were lined with the dead bodies of the elderly. Children and young people were swollen with starvation and roamed the cities until they collapsed in death. The city of Jerusalem, there were so many dead in the city of Jerusalem that they could not bury them all. And so they began to fling, fling the corpses over the city wall. And so you get a sense here that when Jesus is speaking here, he's not using hyperbole. He's not, these are not empty words. These are not just exaggerations. They were real. This kind of judgment came upon the city of Jerusalem. It's almost unspeakable to speak of the sufferings, to consider the sufferings that they endured. But what happened in Jerusalem was just a microcosm of the suffering and the tribulation that the Bible tells us will one day come upon the world. So what will it be like? It will be a time of tremendous suffering and tribulation. But notice also that Jesus indicates here that in the midst of this terrible suffering, God will show mercy. As horrible as the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem was in AD 70, there was a point in which the Lord said, enough, and he spared those who remained. That was an act of mercy. And here we see that as we consider the coming judgment of God, we can also be thankful that God has promised to do the same. We witness mercy in the midst of tribulation. Look there at verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. That is mercy. He shortens the days. And who does he shorten the days for? He shortens the days for the elect, or his chosen ones. Now, this is a theme that we see in Mark chapter 13 several times. So even in this passage, I think the elect are referred to four times. Who are these individuals? Who is it that he shortens the days for? Well, you might read that and think, well, these, these are some uniquely qualified group of people, some elite group of people, the strong, the rich, the highly educated and accomplished. That's why they are chosen and they are spared. You know, in Old Testament history, it was the practice that if a kingdom like Assyria or Babylon conquered a nation, and after they had subdued the nation, they would go through and they would pick out the brightest, the strongest, the most promising, and they would spare them. And then they would train them and they would prepare them for a place in the kingdom. But understand, that's not what's happening here. In fact, it's just the opposite. The elect that are spoken of here are not some elite group of people that are uniquely qualified, but they are the trophies of God's undeserving grace and merit. Paul speaks of the elect in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. And notice how he speaks of them. He writes, but God chose, or he elected, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so you see when the final judgment comes and these ones that God has chosen will be spared, when they are revealed, people won't say, oh yeah, sure, I knew, I knew he would choose him because he's so smart. Or I knew he would choose her because she was so successful. Any king would choose them. No, people rather with shock will say, you mean them? Them? Of all people, God chose to spare them? The elect are the trophies of God's free and undeserving grace and mercy. And here the text says, that God will shorten the days of tribulation for them for his own. Notice also that in the midst of this tribulation, not only will there be mercy, but there's also a warning. Notice the warning that's there in the text. Jesus has already issued this warning, actually way back in verse 6. But he repeats it because it's so important. He says, false Christ and false prophets will arise. So this tribulation, this unparalleled tribulation will come upon the world. God will show mercy to his own, but there will be false prophets, false Christ arising. And he says, here's the warning, don't believe them. Be on guard. You can imagine that in the midst of such terrible persecution and such terrible suffering, that one would be tempted to embrace a religious figure who promises relief or comfort or a quick out. But Jesus says, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray by false Christ and false prophets. And then he gives, in the midst of that warning, he gives a word of comfort. Look there in verse 22. So these false Christ, these false prophets will arise, but he says in verse 22, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And I think the clear implication of that verse is it's not possible, right? If possible. But of course we know it's not possible. It's an impossibility because these are God's people. They are the ones that God has chosen. If he has chosen them, he will not unchoose them. God has paid a penalty for their sin through the death of his son. He will not ask them to pay a double payment. He will not ask them to suffer a double penalty. That would be unjust. They may fall. They may falter. They may stumble at times. But they won't finally fall away because God will keep them. We need to be ready for this day, Jesus says. But the reason we need to be ready for this day is not so that we can just grit our teeth and with willpower push our way through it. The reason we need to be ready for this day is so that we will be ready to cast ourselves on the promises of God and trust in God's grace and God's provision to see us through it. He will keep us. And it's His promise we will rely on. So that's what it will be like. Tribulation with mercy and a promise for those who belong to God. How will it end? Verses 24 to 27. Look there in the text and we read these words. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now I describe here verses 24 and 25 as cosmic chaos. Jesus seems to indicate here that there will be cataclysmic events that take place that will involve the entire universe. Jesus actually takes these words from Old Testament scripture or prophecies that speak, where the Old Testament prophets speak of the sun being darkened and the moon being darkened and stars falling from the heavens. It, it will seem at this point, and, and some people debate, is he speaking figuratively, is he speaking literally here, but I think the idea is that it will seem that all of creation has been forsaken, that a tribulation will come to such a point. It will be a God-forsaken creation, or at least it will seem so. But then Jesus says in verse 26, at that point, the world will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now there's a lot that we could say about this statement, but one thing I want to focus on here is Jesus' reference here to clouds. Okay, and that may seem to be an odd thing to refer to, but, but consider this. Clouds, if you, can, if you can look at clouds in the Old Testament, clouds were symbolic of the presence of God. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In Exodus chapter 24, when Moses, the great prophet of God, ascends Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments and he meets with God on the mountain, we are told that a cloud covered the mountain. Or you fast forward in the Old Testament, you come to 1 Kings chapter 8, and Solomon builds the temple. And the temple is to be the unique place, the special place where God dwells with his people. And so the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was representative of God's special dwelling with his people. So here's the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And when it's placed in the temple, we are told, so the temple's being dedicated, Ark of the Covenant there, we are told a cloud filled the house of the Lord. And that the cloud was so thick that the priest could not minister because of the cloud. This is what the text says. Because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now consider the context in which Jesus makes this statement. He's just left the temple. He's been battling with the religious leaders. The religious leaders have rejected him. The temple is the place where God dwells with his people. This is where the cloud came, symbolic of the presence of God. But now, as Jesus leaves the temple, he curses the temple. He says the temple will be destroyed. No longer will God dwell with his people here at the temple because it's, it's blasphemous. They've rejected me. They've rejected God. But then he promises that one day he will come. And when he comes, he will come with a cloud. And at that point, the sun the Son of God, God Himself, will truly dwell with His people. He will dwell with them forever. He will come, and this is symbolic of His presence with His people forever. This is the hope of creation. Although we have rejected God, and although judgment will come upon creation, ultimately, that God would redeem, and God would restore, and God would be with His people, and His people would be with Him forever. You want to know what happens to the elect? Jesus has referred to them now, I think, four times. 
Jesus will use his great power and his great glory to gather them. Isn't that great? And from everywhere, right? There will be no place where they could be lost. Matthew records in his account, so Matthew is another gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're telling the story of Jesus and Matthew in the parallel account of the events that take place here. He mentions that just prior to Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 13, that Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem, and this is what Jesus had to say regarding the city of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. And so Jerusalem would not be gathered. They would not be gathered to Christ. They would not be gathered to God. Why? Because they refused. Instead of being gathered to Jesus, they would be banished from God's grace and from His mercy and from the protection of God. And the terrible judgment of God for their sin would fall upon the city. But here we see that the elect are not banished. They are not scattered. They are not laid desolate. And why? And here's the good news of the gospel. Because Jesus would be banished and left desolate for them and in their place. This is what's about to happen in just a few chapters, right? This is what happens at the cross when Jesus goes to the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the sins of the elect, all the sins of God's people are placed on Jesus. And he is banished. He is left desolate in their place, suffering their judgment so that we would never, never be forsaken, never be banished, never be tossed away, but so that we would be gathered and we would experience his grace and his mercy and his salvation forever. For those who are trusting in Christ, this is our great, great hope. That God is eternally committed to us in Christ. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us the day or the time when the world will end. But it does tell us that one day the world will end. The Bible tells us that God will judge sin. And that God's people will be saved by His grace. That Jesus Christ will reign and rule and glory. And He will restore this creation that has been marred by sin. So you might be here this morning, and after hearing Jesus' words, you might be asking the question, naturally, well, how can I be saved? How can I know if I'm one of God's elect? How can I know that I will experience His eternal grace and His salvation and His mercy? And in one sense, it's very simple. How can you know? Believe. Turn from your sins. And believe and trust in Jesus. The scriptures say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the mark of God's elect. This is the mark of God's people. They believe and they trust in Jesus for the salvation of their soul. And then they follow him in anticipation of his coming rule and reign. 
So believe in him. Trust in him. He will save you and he will keep you. If you are trusting in Jesus, then this passage provokes us to ask the question, are we ready for this day? I mean, Jesus asks, he points us to this over and over again. Be on guard. Be ready. We'll see this especially next week. Are we ready for this day? Do you live every day in light of this one great day that is to come? Think about it. Your relationships, your time, your finances. It's coming. It's coming. Are you ready? Heed the words of Jesus. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus, and we thank you that in his grace, and in His mercy, that He speaks to us of what's to come, so that we might be ready. We thank You, Father, that You are a God of justice and righteousness and holiness. That You will not allow sin and injustice to go unaccounted for forever. That there will be a judgment. And Father, we thank You and we praise You that in light of that judgment, Lord, none of us, none of us could stand. But Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have provided grace and mercy through your Son. Lord, may we look to Christ in faith. May we trust him. May we follow him. May we be ready for that day. I thank you and praise you, Lord, that there is nothing ultimately in our own selves that can prepare us for that day. But Jesus has done everything in going to the cross and taking our sin, being raised again to conquer death and the judgment of sin. May we trust in that promise. Father, as we trust in Jesus and as we trust in that promise, I thank you that you will keep us. That you will keep us. And Lord, even as we look ahead to that day and as we read of these events and how startling and even scary they can be, Lord, may we not fear. But may we trust in your promise in your grace, in your ability to keep us and preserve us, that it is not in our power, but in your power. You will keep us. May we rest in that. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.